On this episode of Year One, we speak to Dan Truman, founder of Duga Digital, which helps companies optimize their marketing budgets through data. Dan speaks about creating opportunities in a saturated market, being accountable, pricing your value, and expansion through partnership. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. The very first question that we ask on Year One is, why now? Why entrepreneurship? What happened that you decided, looking at your CV, you were an institution man, you know? What actually happened that you decided, no, I'm giving this all up and I'm going to go out on my own? I think that was because I had some time during the pandemic. In 2019, I worked. I was working for TUI Group. I was flying around the world. I took 94 flights in 2019. My carbon footprint is horrendous. I <laughs> was getting up at 3, 4 in the morning, heading over to Amsterdam for a day, coming back at 11 o'clock at night, rinse and repeat maybe twice or three times a week. And the lockdown happened and I had to stay at home with my wife, which was lovely, my dog, which was great. And then I thought, well, actually I can use that time because I'm used to getting up. I'm a morning person, which is uh, quite a good thing actually <laughs> for business people. I'm a morning person anyway. I can use that time to, I've got a decent network. Actually, I've got a more than decent network. They're fantastic people, to be honest with you all. And, and I'm still building it and keeping those relationships live. And people were asking me f questions and favors. And I thought, well, okay, can I charge you for this? And then I, so I was doing it on the side for six months, a year. And then went, okay, do you know what? This is actually, I got my big win and we'll talk about that later probably, but I got my big win and went, nah, not working for anyone else now. This I'm not, I don't want to have to share the profit or anything like that. So yeah, it was kind of all organic, but the pandemic actually stopped me. And like most people probably said, what do you want to do with your life? Can you do something different? Do you have to be an institution man? As you called me, Dion, how do you change that? I want to ask, when did that narrative change? The way you just explained it, flying around everywhere and carbon footprint. At some point, I'm sure you had said it a different way. I get to get up every day. I get to travel all over the place. I get to meet new people. I get to be on adventures. Yeah. And that same narrative now is different. What changed and when? It's a, yeah, it was a, you're right, Satish. It was a really cool, it was a cool job as well. Don't get me wrong. It's working in travel. So I get to go to loads of cool places. I was working, I was partnered with Google. I was doing joint business plans with Google and Facebook. Cool job. By on the outside, I think I haven't actually told many people about this, but I had a panic attack on a flight coming back and we were flying down into, I think it was Gatwick, which tells you how many flights it was. So I don't even remember. And I know it was coming back from Amsterdam because I realized I didn't have to go to that meeting that day. I was there for literally four hours. And I didn't have to go to that meeting. It was stupid. And I had a panic attack coming down. There was just too much happening. There was too much stress in the role. There was, I think we actually dived down towards the runway. It was really windy down to the runway. And then we went back up after I think we got to within 30 feet of the ground and we went back up and it was just horrible. Just no, thank you. And I just thought to myself then it was, it was that worth going to Amsterdam? Was that worth, am I worth that to a company? And then I probably, I think I went on LinkedIn or something and probably saw a quote, like they'll replace you in a week. Don't care about your company too much and all that. And it was kind of real at that point because a lot of those quotes aren't real until you experience something. They're very out of body. So yeah, that was probably the moment where I just thought, do you know what? This is not it. The other one is probably when, when working for TUI and during the pandemic, 
we were about a billion in debt to our customers and I just thought this is a yeah this seems like a lot to be in and I don't own any of this so so why do I feel badly about this or so badly about this so yeah it's an interesting time 2019-20 man that's amazing thank you for sharing that no worries so Dan we've spoken about why what happened so tell our listeners what is Duga Digital Give us a little bit of a bottle. Sure. I try and help different companies and they vary in size to global, to regional, to local, optimize their websites and marketing budgets. So that's through data, whether that's presenting data back to make better decisions from, whether that's integrating data for better audiences and better marketing performance, or whether it's better data integration across businesses to, to start linking some of the dots that haven't necessarily been joined together through those insights that either I create or create the foundations for. Businesses can make better decisions, can take different approaches, can actually start to utilize some of the power that they have that they don't know they have and start asking them questions of why things have been done in a certain way, what their approach needs to be, what their strategy is and where, how they want to be going in the future. Now, would you consider this business ties into your passion? The reason I ask is, there's over 15 or 18 different recommendations on your LinkedIn profile. Pretty much all of them talk about your analytical brain and how you are a data guy. And that seems to be sort of the thing that you really help people with. Is this business embodiment of your passion for data and analytics? Pretty much, to be honest with you. I don't know why, but I really like digesting numbers and understanding how they work with each other. So. To give you an example, cricket is probably my first sport, first love. And there are so many ridiculous rules and so many ridiculous outcomes and the scorecards make no sense to anyone who's not an alien. It's just, it's a bit ridiculous. And I think the sort of niche of that was marketing and how can you make that commercial? And it was quite an interesting sort of point of when I came into, I studied a marketing degree. And when I came into my first role, it was still at a point where I was giving, I was giving call sheets to a number of different call handlers and saying, okay, here's the, here's the way we want to do this. Here's how we want to play the calls and whatever. And nobody was looking at the numbers. Nobody was dissecting how they were performing, how, what, whether we could tailor anything, whether we could optimize. It was just day in, day out. This is how we're going to roll things. And I was like, this is mad. You guys can't be serious. This is no, this is just going to like slowly decline surely. And then I got into websites and obviously all the data that comes out of, out of the web that can be tracked is a, it's a fantastic thing for business cases and yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Dan, so what I want to understand is data analytics. That is a saturated market. There are so many people out there. They've pe companies have their own in-house data analytics teams. Yep. Anyone that's done a little bit of marketing and Google analytics has good analytics experience. They go out and they promote themselves as an analytics specialist. How have you been able to carve a niche or find a gap in this massively saturated market? Well, you just said it, Dion. They, anyone who's done any marketing or Google analytics is going out and promoting themselves for it. I go around cleaning up that shit. Like it's, they're just, there's so many horrendous implementations that provide little to no value to departments that they're supposed to give back to that it's. I'm not going to say it's easy or anything like that, but it is a market to tap into to say, this is actually where you could be doing this and you need to slow down because you're trying to be, you're trying to be two years or whatever ahead of where you're supposed to. There's a lot of people who think that the investment isn't required for that and you can plug and play and the danger of plug and play and any technology that tells you that plug and play is viable 
is that it's a really dangerous place to be. You can't just assume that things will work for you because they've worked for someone else. So there's so many, I think it's because there's so much customization and there's so many loose customizations, let's call it. There's a market available. Satish, I know you've got a question, but your byline is not do good digital, I clean other people's shit. So how do people know that you go in there to clean the shit? I guess I take it in three phases. So I do a discovery phase and I tell them where their problems are and what they can be doing and what they could, what they should be expecting out. I do an implementation phase, which says, okay, here's what I've designed for you. And here's the solutions that I've explained will happen. Deliver that. And we see the data flowing and we see the outcomes that we're expecting. And then I have an activation phase and that is either the da dashboards to make better decisions. It is integrating data into better ways of working. It is pushing data around businesses to make sure that the whole business doesn't have silos. Yeah, it is not cleaning up other people's shit. Don't get me wrong, but there's so much we call, I call it analytics debt in the same way that you have technical debt. There's, but I think technical debt is almost more livable that you can live with it. Analytics debt actually functions day in, day out in decisions that are made. Technical get yes, definitely lives there. And unfortunately it, it's prevalent everywhere, but as long as the, as long as your site and or product still works, you can live with it. If you're making bad decisions constantly, there's only one way and that's downhill. That's a good, that's a good pitch. I'll buy it. Who doesn't have a data issue? And I feel like your customers kind of have to get to that point where they're not lying to themselves. They got to tell themselves there is a problem. I need to go seek extra help because who wants to admit that the thing that is their brain, their data, their intelligence is off or wrong. And if you make it easy for them to admit that, Hey, I need help. That's sales 101. I want to talk about your growth. So I've been lucky enough to build a ton of businesses and coach a bunch of founders. And my sort of blueprint is there's two types of founders. Ones that are passionate. They want to solve a problem. They don't have any expertise in it yet, but they dive in great storytellers and they become experts in the category. I'm going through that with Schoolio and my education startup. I have nothing in, natively good in learning about the education system, but I'm passionate about making change. And then there's folks that are experts who can solve a problem, but then they have to learn all the other things that passionate folks already have. The storytelling, the charisma, the salesmanship. I feel like you're down the expert path. And then I'm wondering what are some of the other skills that you're working on or need to develop in your eyes? Sure. First of all, I'd make a point about the expert word, which is that any, as soon as anyone calls themselves an expert, they're not. I hate that. I'm always learning so much all the time. And to be honest with you, even more so going back this way, right? So I'm now hundred percent accountable for every, every part of this business. And so someone who has been an institution man, I'm going to keep that one by the way, and has managed teams for the last, I don't know, what, seven to 10 years. I'm now self-reliant rather than having to manage other people and try and build outcomes through those people. And so that is ultimately my biggest challenge. 100% is being there, but equally it's kind of what pushes me. I have to turn up every day. I have to do those things. Otherwise they're, they're just not going to get done. And that's quite an interesting feeling. And you kind of mentioned it before we, we came on air, which it's kind of like a drug, like you kind of the momentum that you gain, you just have to keep going. Like you just got to keep doing it consistently, pushing it out. And seeing what happens. Biggest challenges in terms of skill sets, if I can put it in that terminology. I don't naturally sell particularly well. I also rush through quite quickly, quite complex subjects sometimes. 
and actually have to tailor it back into people who aren't necessarily devoted to cricket scorecards and things like that. And you need working through. And it's that storytelling piece, whereas I, I will skip to the ultimate, as I see it, quite easy end. There's a storytelling piece to where people need to be taken on the journey where the, from where they are to the utopia that I'm going to sell them. One great example of this was recently, I was with a client, a huge global bank, and I'd pulled together seven slides, really succinct in my head anyway, slides. And I showed them to my friend who's a yeah, really good, really good character. Actually, you should get her on here at Kerry Dawes. And she, she basically looked at them and went, can I sit down with you for two hours and we, we can get in, get inside your head? And I was like, yeah, sure. Anyway, two hours later, we've got 83 slides. I'm, I'm not joking. 83 slides. They are beautiful. She's amazing at what she does in, like, in, in a storytelling way. And I went, are you sure that's going to work? She went, the client's going to love it. And I was like, okay, right. Anyway, the client comes back and goes, this is much more what we're looking for. And I can't believe, uh, thank you very much for taking us through this. I was like, but you, we just said exactly what I said in seven slides. And she said, yeah, but you got to walk them through it like step by step. And I was like, okay, yeah. So that's one of my biggest sort of, because when you're an expert, when you're a, when you're a subject matter consultant, you focus initially just on that. And actually you need to take it much wider than that as a business owner to be able to work out where you slot in. Dan, I'm going to circle right back to the beginning of the conversation where you said it was a big win and we might touch on that. Let's touch on that big win if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. I won't divulge client information or anything like that, but I basically, one of my good friends and former colleague has taken a, a fantastic role at a C-suite level with a global company and saw that I'd started this business offering what I do. We'd work together. So she had trust. You were only left on the side though, right? Yeah, at that yeah, point at that, in time. yeah, exactly. At that point in time. But I saw that via LinkedIn, we were connected and said to me, I've walked into this job and we've got nothing in your area. Can you help me? And I was like, yeah, of course, no worries at all. And that just came into the conversation. We, are, I did the discovery phase effectively, which was what's the issues that Tish said, everyone wants their problem solved. You just got to hear them and understand them and then play them back to them basically. And that was yeah, a, real, a real win. So I've been put together a, a package at this point, almost as if I was an agency, because I'm offering the same service, I'm offering the same outcomes, same timelines effectively. And yeah, it, it <laughs> got accepted and we went from there and I was like, okay, now I'm going to have to do some late nights because I've got two jobs. Yeah, that's great, man. On that path, one of the challenges that most first time founders have is how do I price my value? When you're not selling a tangible product, like an e-com thing, I bought a pen yeah. for a dollar. I'm selling up a three. Talk to us a little bit, right? depending on how much you want to share. How did you go through the process of putting a value on yourself where as an institution, man, somebody else put the value on your time? Yeah, absolutely. I guess you can kind of take a bit from the institution man road. So you can say, this is how much I was valued in-house. The other way I've kind of just, I've got lots of friends in the industry. So it's been a sort of networking conversation around what does that look like? And then this is kind of cheeky, but I, what I tend to do is say, okay, what's the budget? Are you looking at for this project? How do you work around that? The other piece is how vehemently or strongly opposed to a certain figure my clients might be when like when I put one out there. So then you can get a pretty quick, you have pretty good feedback, which I mean, feedback in this year one is probably a massive topic that you talk about all the time, but uh, yeah. getting that feedback really quickly and you go, okay, yeah, no, let's talk in a different ballpark, that kind of thing. That's a really... Yeah, it's kind of at the moment luck and judgment, but I'm finding my car, I'm covering my niche and effectively 
hopefully over time that come that becomes a value point and then i can talk about the value that i've given for other clients and case studies and then you can sort of work up and build that pricing model yeah it's kind of all over the place to be honest with you because some projects will have real interest for me because i want that case study as well i want to be able to say that i've delivered whether it's seven multinational sites doing the same thing or i want to be able to say that i've delivered across a specific tool set it's kind of there's probably some formula around like willingness to work on it price involvement and value that's coming out the other side for the client and budget but i haven't yeah. as, as i said earlier i haven't really had a chance to sit down and reflect too much about any of those pieces at the moment i kind of prefer the old school that? days dion remember the old school days we write a number on a napkin we slide it across the table <laughs> and then let it sit there for a minute good old days <laughs> so did I Dan, is there a bit of winging it involved in this? Or I know you from a few years ago and being an analytic person and things like that, everything is in its box and you've thought it through and things like that. But are you finding that you're winging some of the things that you're doing at the moment? I think I'd be lying. I think anyone would be lying if they said that they had it all down. But yeah, definitely. I think I have, <laughs> you're right, I am an analytic person. So I have thousands of spreadsheets, but there's a business plan, there's a forecast, there's there's prospects, there's clients, there's all the funnel activity you'd expect, but equally it's winging it from a point of view of, I don't know where I'll be in five years time. I know where I'll be this year. And luckily for some of my clients, I know where I'll be next year and maybe the year after, because I've got decent contracts involved. But yeah, apart from that, not really. I have a vision, I think, which is a difficult, difficult thing to settle on, but an important thing to settle on, especially within the first year was something I'm learning really quickly. But I think, yeah, I think everyone's winging it, especially individuals sat in a co-working space who have a desk in themselves and that's about it. Yeah, that's the fulcrum of their company. No, I love that, man. So now you're on your own, your own man, making your own rules, making your own world. Talk to us a little bit about your routine. You said you're a morning person from before. What is your morning like? What are some of the new routines that you've maybe developed now as solo entrepreneur? And also what does sort of balance mean now? when you get to choose what balance means and not dictated by somebody else? Oh, that's a really interesting question, that last part. So I'll get onto that in a second, but I'll take your first part for that. So the morning routine is, I'm probably up between half five and six o'clock most mornings. I will let the dog out. He will go upstairs, meet my uh, see my wife while she continues to sleep. I'll be in here for seven o'clock when this place opens and I don't set the alarm off. And then I have two hours pretty free Unless I've got a couple of meetings, I've got a couple of international clients. So Abu Dhabi is three hours ahead, for example. And then I will try and get my head down and get analytical work done, to be honest with you, at that time until the rest of the world kicks on at nine o'clock. And then we'll, and then we'll go. We'll see. I try and keep my morning head down. I try and keep, I call it my, my, my deep work time, nine thirty till eleven thirty, twelve ish. And yeah, then kick on with meetings in the afternoon to see what comes next. Your second question around balance is really interesting because I think that the, the people who start their own businesses are so passionate that they've had to kick up the ass that they've given themselves to go and, and basically throw themselves into it, that they will work a lot of hours and they will push themselves. And I am definitely in that category my wife has had to pull me back and say you've got to stop working so hard and all the rest of it but i'm starting to try and take that a bit easier now trying to play golf a couple of times a week and see friends and do the stuff i like to do because before i was yeah kind of overexerting myself let's say and trying to do too much too dan is there anything that you wish you knew at the start before embarking on this journey 
I definitely needed to know how to pay myself. I You pay yourself? Yeah. You're the 1% yeah. already. <laughs> well, that's good to know. But yeah, there were so many sort of foundational business things that I definitely learned at university. As I said, I did a business course. I did... <laughs> Did I did all of that? And it was so theoretical then. Now I'm just like, I, yeah, I'm so glad I have my accountant. I have so many good people in the network that I can lean on and ask questions to. But yeah, I didn't, I don't know if there's anything I would have, I think Dion, to be honest with you, I, I didn't know. So I knew so little beforehand that everything has been new. So because when you're in institution, man, when you're in an institution, when you're in corporates, when you're in clients, when you're in big companies, everything's taken care of for you. I had no idea I'm setting up medical insurance life insurance, income protection, pensions, blah, blah, blah. And you go, okay, well, I'd better do that because nobody else is going to do it. And it's pretty important. So HR and finance and all of that in one, but no, nothing. I don't think there's anything I wish I knew beforehand because I've enjoyed learning it. I've enjoyed understanding it. I've really enjoyed the process of going through that and sometimes wishing I'd done something different, but not anything drastic, really. Maybe oh, I could have, awesome, maybe man. I could have got 50 quid extra a day, but that's I'll learn that next time. Well, there's a quarterly price update that could happen in our business. So it's all good. It's been six months. I'm curious then, as you think about the future with this business, do you see this thing as a personal business for you and you're taking on work that you can manage, keep your balance, keep your work hands on? Do you imagine this thing scaling into something where you are now running a team of 30 folks and you're national and you're global? What is your vision? Walk us through a little bit. Yeah, I think I, this is the conversation that I was talking about with my vision. I, at the moment, I don't see it going any further than me. I'm quite enjoying the variety. I'm quite enjoying the ability to sort of pick and choose. I think the the weight, if you like, of having the responsibility of other people's salaries, the other people's bills, family lives, all that kind of thing, as a business owner, seems quite large and not something I want to sort of put myself under at, the, at this point i talked earlier about sort of managing teams and the dynamics that you have to create and the frankly as a business owner risks you can take by bringing those people in if they don't turn out to be right it just becomes challenging on all sides i think at this moment that i've got no no real desire to move that forward i take on partners so i work on with a couple of clients on with different partners so we each get ourselves and we've got skin in the game uh, and they are small partners as well they're not big agencies or anything like that so it becomes a sort of viable model um but yeah apart from that i don't see anything in the future that way and then, to be honest with you if i got if i got a challenged or didn't feel like it was right i think there's always the opportunity to go back to client work client side work and go and take a steady paycheck somewhere i love that you said that with such confidence and honesty man because so many of the folks i find who are getting into entrepreneurship they're so caught up in the idea of it. This always on, you got to scale. What? You were one person last year and you're still one person this year. No growth. And this idea of this toxic growth is consumed. And in many ways, I think damaged the entrepreneurship brand. And when I meet people, I tell them I was, I was an entrepreneur even before the word was cool or people knew about it, but it's this idea of pace and control and we live in a world where you're either growing and you're burning and you're failing and you're unicornish or you're not in the game. And I love the fact that you're like, I kind of dig it. This is my success formula. I'm going to stay in it and I'm going to feel good about it, which I think people need to hear more of. 
I think there's yeah, there's definitely a place for that sort of let's go rocket ship growth. That's the VC back companies, things like that. But yeah, a couple of my friends who did own agencies who had more people in it than just themselves thought it wasn't worth it. They found real struggle. It was difficult to difficult for them, and it was actually difficult to be around with them while that was happening. On your point around toxic growth, what I what I find amazing is inside the corporates, inside the institutions, they're doing three year plans. Coca Cola has a three year plan. And if they're not like looking for growth, then they probably get that thrown out. But there's no, where can they grow? Mars? There's no, there's, it's literally, it's crazy. Like the amount of, I call it corporate bullshit inside those companies that, that are, you know, that, what are they going to do? Put, go on TikTok. Okay. That's a new thing or whatever it might be, the Discord or whatever. I think it's going to be really interesting when we get into this recession and everyone says, okay, that's that, where that spend and where that growth goes what are they going to start looking at then because you can't just go oh we're going to get more we're going to get more customers no it's a recession everyone knows you're not going to get more customers try again and yeah i think that's kind of another reason is we're coming into a difficult time i'd be remiss to try and say i'm going to grow 20 times in a year or whatever it might be but i do think there is a place for it for different agencies but that's just not my vibe then can i talk shop for a minute because you're talking now about the recession and companies are going to be restricted in their growth and things like that in the domain that you operate in there's all this talk about this cookie-less future. How does that impact your business model? It's funny. I was talking to a vendor earlier about this very thing. And it was, I said to them, to be honest with you, my job in one line is to de deliver the best possible solution for my clients, whether that's cookie-less, whether that's with cookies, whether we're looking at first-party, third-party data. If I can, and that's one of, one of my business model streams is to partner with the right vendors in the right time and allow me to offer the best solutions to my customers. And so ultimately, I don't want it to, dear, and I don't think it should. I think if it affects me, it affects probably the entire digital marketing industry. And so there will be ways around it. We can think creatively. I might be analytical. I'm also pretty creative around data and inferring behaviors and inferring understanding and creating a sort of viable value. I don't think it's going to be as bad as people see, seem to think it will be. I think it'll be a change, but I think it might be an opportunity. You might get, you might have a new angle to market to people. I think it might give people more, well, it definitely will give people more control over their data, which ultimately means that you should work on something that's more, more akin to creating a proper relationship with your customer rather than just being able to get to the customer. I think there's a very big difference between being able to get to someone rather than accessing that person with their consent and having a conversation and almost making it a bit sort of more personal. Okay. So there's no fear at this point in time. It's a case of it's going to happen and we will assess what happens and we'll try and identify the opportunities in that change in the landscape. That's exactly what I would say to my clients. Yeah. I think there's, there's things that all clients can do. You talked about it earlier. Everyone's got a data problem. And I think the key would be addressing that data problem so that you're in a better position, whatever that happens. So that you can, you can't, I wouldn't look too far outwards because you can't control that. You can only control what you've got in inside your sphere. And if you're happy with your data setup, then by all means, that's a good thing and keep going. If there's even one question mark, I think try and address those things. But yeah, I think other than that, there's not a lot. You're not going to control what comes out of Google as much as you may want to. It's not going to happen. I'm not either, by the way. <laughs> I haven't got that power. So dish you on mute if you've got a question. I was going to say, I've got some friends at Google, but they don't take my calls. So we can't make any influence <laughs> there. Talking about data, let's reverse the data talk a little bit. 
uh, look at yourself. So a lot of small business owners and new startup founders, while they're really focused on what they do for clients, they lose sight of what data they should focus on in their own business. Something simple like, like cash flow in, cash flow out. So I'm curious from a data perspective, because we have a data expert on the call today, it's exciting. What are some of the things that you look for in your own business as milestones or trigger points around how you manage your business? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'll take it in two ways. So the first way is a really honest that I, whilst I specialize in digital analytics, I realized the other day that I have not put digital analytics to the extent I should have done on my own website, which I think is pretty classic for a lot of different, a lot of different businesses. I realized this when I was talking someone through and I was like, oh, just get an example from my website. Nope, not there. The sort of business KPIs, if you like, I'm looking more around, this is month three of full time on this. So I'm looking more around cash flow. Getting paid is not easy as a one man band against some enterprises. It's quite an interesting dynamic and it's a lot back and forth. I'm looking at number of clients. Basically, I want to Oh, a fairly healthy understanding after the last sort of few weeks of where I can service those clients to a quality that I'm happy with compared with where I want to be. And then I also look at different revenue streams. So I have kind of three different revenue streams that I work by and trying to understand what the balance is between that and my time. Because as corny as it sounds, and I go back to those quotes that we see on LinkedIn, my time is seriously now my commodity. Like nothing more precious to me, whether that's work or home life, literally nothing more precious to me because I'm one man party. Every, <laughs> everything comes through me and I, I work anyway. Dan, I'm going to close off the segment now with, we've got three words that we put out there to all our podcast guests. And we ask them to tell us what are the thoughts or phrases that come to mind in the context of where they are on their own journey around entrepreneurship. The three words essentially are family, team, and entrepreneurship. But considering that you're a one-man band, I'm going to change the word team more to partners or network. So let's start with family. What comes to mind in the context of where you are with Duga and your journey to date? Family. I probably need to do a better job of spending more time with my family, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, it's probably, we, yeah, we, I do, yeah, it's, I, I spend a lot of time working and that's probably comes on to the one man band piece. If you have yeah. people you can rely on people, you can, if you can talk to, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting one, but yeah, I think they've been fantastically supportive, unbelievably supportive, and probably even more so because I'm a one man. I, it's really interesting where that may not get support in other companies or people you've spoken to. I've had nothing but unreserved support, which is fantastic. That's excellent. And then, as I say, next one would be network or partners. I cannot believe how important that would be. I will give you a very short anecdote about this because I have a, a fantastic network that I actually started building by attending very geeky meetups in London pubs about web analytics. And this is on Wednesday night. Where, well, just chat. riveting, right? But this is like when I was mid, mid probably early twenties and just turning up and not having much to talk about on contribute, but learning and building my network and talking to people and putting yourself out there. And it just comes back. It pays you literally tons. I've been referred work by different people because of that. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. I can't believe how incredibly important your network can be and how close people can be as well. So you can be, I'm, I'm, I'm connected to the, I think, senior partner for measurement in uh, Google by a close friend in LA. And I'm like, how is that even 
how is that even possible in, but in the world we live in, that is completely possible. So yeah, most important thing I think in this business is that network. And then the last word is entrepreneur. Yeah. I don't think I'm, I don't really feel like an entrepreneur. I feel like I'm being me and offering my services as me and I'm looking to offer value, looking to offer trustworthy relationship looking to sort of just be myself and be humble about what I'm doing. Like I said to you before, I think as soon as you start speaking yourself as an expert or suggesting that you're a niche or anything, I think it almost, I would, I've done a lot of referring other people work as well. And I think it's about that, that ecosystem that makes this work go around. I love that. Dan, look, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to Satish and myself. If people wanted to reach out to you, where would they find you? They find me at dogadigital.com. That's D-U-G-A. Awesome. We're going to reach out to you in a year's time. I want to see what's happened with Duga. And yes, thanks. Thanks once again. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. Thanks a lot. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Satish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit Bluemex.io to join us on Discord.